Well, good morning. It's a joy to be here with you to serve and to honor our Lord together. Uh, to be able to hear the word together is, is no small feat, and it's a true blessing from our God. Uh, let me invite you to turn, take out your Bible, and then turn with me to the fifth chapter in the book of Romans. Uh, the fifth chapter in the book of Romans, it is in the New Testament. It is right after the Gospels. It's right after the book of Acts. And it's Paul's letter to the church at Rome. A wonderful, splendid letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the edification, to the building up of the church there in the fifth chapter. And as you turn in your Bible there, find your way, navigate your way through there. Uh, let me first, first thank the elders of this church for inviting me. Uh, it just, again, I'm just deeply, deeply indebted to both the prayers and both uh, just to the hospitality. Uh, I love just when the word of the Lord is being exposited, being preached, and all the more being lived out in your life. I find that to be a great joy, a great sustaining edification. And as you're there, you're turning into the book of Romans. I just want to thank the elders, Pastor Jeremy and Jeremy as well, just that I know that um, it's no small small task just to give up the pulpit on the Sunday, uh, let alone to even a family friend as well. So I just, uh, again, indebted to that. This is the reading of God's Word, and you find there Romans 5. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. Uh, and this is God's inspired and foul and errant word. May the Lord take His Word and seal it in our hearts this morning. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. <clears throat> Paul writes to the church, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Pray with me. Father, these are treasured words that you've given to your people. Words that build us up in our faith. Words that securely direct us to look towards the good and sanctifying work in Jesus Christ. These words exalt what Christ has done on the cross. Obedient to the very point of death and dying upon that cross. And then being resurrected as well in triumph over sin, over death. Father, these words are so precious to many of us and all of us who believe in the name and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who has rescued us from our sin. We've come back to these words time and time again in our walk with you to emerge victorious in your Son, Jesus Christ. We may have been brought low because of sin, because of the battle against the flesh, because of the battle against unbelief. And time and time again we've emerged through the reading of your word, through depending upon you and through the work of your Holy Spirit in our life, victorious, encouraged, strengthened. Father, it was with great expectation that you would now take these precious words this morning, begin to apply them in our life, strengthen them in our walk with you, that we may eagerly cast off sin, the things that are the old, and to eagerly put on the things of the new that we have in Christ. And so, Father, you know all too well where we are in our relationship, in our walk with you. 
pray that your word would strengthen the weak, the humble before you this morning, who have depended upon you in every season of their life. Pray that your words, Father, would be like honey upon their lips, like water to a parched soul. Father, we pray for those who do not know you. We pray for your word to break through unbelief. That it would bring strong, such strong conviction. And that they would be saved by your grace and your mercy. Father, may you take your good word this morning and do what you will. Knowing full well that in the book of Isaiah, he says that your word will not depart from our lips, our life, without any gift or without any blessing. Father, we pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. We pray these in the Son's name. Amen. It was about three years ago that uh, my wife and I had the, just the unique privilege, the unique opportunity to be able to buy a home in California. And you know, living in California, that that's not something easy or simple. It really was just by God's grace that we were able to be put in a position where we could purchase a home. And one of the things that when you begin to purchase a home is that you have to hire for a day, an inspector. And as the title suggests, his goal, his purpose is to go through your home or wherever you're going to buy and to go from bottom up, up from top down to look at your home. It's to give what I would estimate as is constructive criticism of what you're going to buy. Uh, he is unabashedly going to tell you the weaknesses of your home. He will tell where the molding is rotting. He will tell you where termites may exist. He will tell you that the attic is horrible. The insulation is poor. He goes on and on and on. And of course, you have to pay this individual to tell you what is wrong with this home that you long to buy or hope to buy. That was new for me and for my wife as well. And so when we uh, enlisted this man's help, one of the dangers to our home that he told me was the foundation could be threatened by this large, large ficus tree. I looked at the man and I asked, foundation, what do you mean? Well, he kind of chuckled and he says, you know, young man, the foundation of your home is very important. And I thought, that's true, it is important. Why did I not think of that? And he told me that the foundation was going to be threatened by this large ficus tree because the roots could, you know, work to undermine the foundations. It could go underground and to ruin whatever stable platform the house could rest on. I was like, oh, wow, I never really knew that. And he's like, you know, you're not alone, young man. The foundation of your home is, is important. It's vital. Many don't really give much consideration to the foundation of their home. They just assume that the home will be built on something, on ground, and that it will stand the test of time. Well, I thank the man for his kind and sage advice. I told him that we will look into destroying this tree uh, because it's a threat to the foundation. I was kind of rebuked in my own heart because I thought to myself, that's just a simple thing. I should know better that the foundation of my home is very important. But you look through the pages of history and you would not be alone in joining me as just thinking that the foundation can often go remiss, escape our notice. I only point to you to one great significant building in Italy, the Tower of Pisa, as an evidence of how not giving careful consideration as to the foundation is vital, is important. For many in Christian churches, and in, in this church, and my church, I constantly worry about the foundation in your life and the church's life. And I worry about the foundation of what is being built upon. And here in Romans 5, Paul tells the church that as he builds upon the sure foundation of Christ's righteousness, being given to you by faith and in faith through Christ, how do you build upon that foundation of righteousness? Well, I think here in Romans 5, there are six remarkable pillars of truth. Six remarkable pillars of truth that I hope this morning you will gravitate towards, that you will build your life of holy living upon. Six remarkable pillars of truth, each pristine, each built by the very safe, sure hands of our Lord, each built upon the foundation of Christ's righteousness that will not be threatened, that will not be in danger, and that will not succumb to the world. The first is the peace with God. The peace with God. And there you find in the very opening of this letter in Romans 5 verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And these are such sweet, sweet words. 
Now you're reading there in your Bible, you know that when you come to a therefore, you got to think, pause, hold on. What is it therefore for? That means you got to go before what was there in the therefore. So you just got to go back and trace along in the Bible there as Paul's been making his argument there in Romans in the book of Romans, in Romans 1, this entire letter is centered around how to make you holy. How do you, can you have a relationship with God? What stands before you, before God? Before you knew God, before you knew Christ, before you acknowledged Him as Lord and Savior, and you cherished Him and depended upon Him, Paul says in Romans 1 that we were unrighteous. The entire scope of this wonderful, cherished, treasured letter is found there in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. So if you're there, just kind of follow along with me. I'm going to give you the highlights, as it were, of this book of Romans so that we can get to Romans 5, verse 1. Because in order to have peace with God, you've got to know what you were not at peace with. You have to know that you were at odds with God. That, but the Bible says that you were at enmity. You were an enemy of God. There Paul writes in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, to faith unto faith, and as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There in two verses, Paul lays out the very foundations, the theme of this, this wonderful book. He tells us that we are given from faith, for faith, the righteousness of God. He goes on then to build up this church that he didn't start, he didn't plant, but that he wants to visit. He longs to be an edification, to be a gift unto them, knowing as how they're a gift to him as well in their living for the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why in Romans 1, Paul takes such a long, glorious time in unfolding the wrath of God. The wrath that God has over unrighteousness. It's easy to gloss over Romans 1, 2, 3, and to say that, well, that's not me. But you know what? That was us. That was you. That was me. We were at odds with God. We were someone that was so corrupted to the very core in our unrighteousness. We stood apart from God. There was this entire gulf that existed and that we longed to know who this God was, this holy, loving, just God. And how could we ever bridge this gap to get to this God that we so endear ourselves to and that we love? Paul is clear and he tells us in lovingly fashion with unmincing words he tells the church there at Rome that we were facing the wrath of God that we were going to suffer we were going to face an eternal hell and condemnation we were going to be punished Paul loves this church and by loving this church he goes on in length to tell them and by extension us this morning of our unrighteousness that we hated God we did not love God. We pursued our own interests. We pursued our own ways. Paul tells us that as an extension of our unrighteousness, our radical corruption, we were like gossips there in chapter 1, verse 29, verse 30. Slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, invent inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Oh, beloved, that was us. We were marked in this way. We were the ones that spat in the face of our God and of His Son. We were guilty of this treason. We were guilty of not obeying and loving and acknowledging God as King, as the right ruler over our life. And because of that treason, Paul writes there in chapter 2, that we faced God's righteous judgment. Oh, you and I, we were in the holy courtroom. We were there standing before the eternal God. And we stood condemned, guilty, and awaiting sentence that we knew all too well. We were going to go to hell and to be removed from the very presence of our God. God says through Paul, the writer there, Romans 2, 
God, while we face this type of judgment, God still in His grace and mercy and in His righteousness, His holiness, was so caring for His people by giving out the law of the Lord, by giving out what the standards of holiness was going to be, how to live and what it meant to be holy. And there, in, in, in just a culmination of joy, Paul explodes in his praise in chapter 3 that the righteous of God shall live by faith. Who then will save you and I from this radical corruption? The Jews, as an example, could not save themselves. They could not save or rescue themselves by works of hands or by works of labor. They could not save themselves. And really, in our world today, there are only two really principal uh, divisions. You are either saved by grace, by God's mercy, by His work and by His power and His sovereignty, or you are saved by your own works and your own labor. That's the only two divisions. It is a work of hand, it is a work of man's own standards, or it is a work of God, a gracious work of God. God in His mercy has saved those who profess in faith that Christ is their Lord and their Savior. In order to really cherish there, when you get back to Romans 5, as Paul's been navigating in verses, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, this is why in chapter 5, just as a simple observation, it reads like praise, does it not? It reads like an exaltation. It reads like a triumphant, joyful proclamation of victory. There is not one sense when you read in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, you could not but help in the back of your mind or at home later when you review, hear these glorious words, just a triumphant raising of your fist. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Praise the Lord. This is true. Because I know there at the very beginning that the first pillar that we have is this remarkable peace with God. Take note that in chapter 5, verse 1, that this is an objective fact. This is not your feelings. This is the reality in which you and I live this morning. If you proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior, you live this morning in this truth that you now finally have peace with God because you are through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the facts. This is your life. This is your reality now. Although you as a believer may know that when you sin, you break this peace. You destroy this peace that you might have. Prolonged sin, a prolonged habit, a prolonged coveting of sin, a prolonged desire to rest in sin, continually to erode away any peace that you may feel. And that brings along with it its own destruction, its own calamity, its own searing of the conscience. And for those that this morning maybe you are harboring a sin, maybe you are unwilling to confess a sin and you proclaim yourself to be a Christian, may I exhort you and encourage you, believer, brother or sister, please come to the throne of grace and mercy before the Lord. Ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. First John, John writes that you may receive forgiveness in full from the throne of grace and be made new and be made renewed. Put away sin. The writer of Hebrews says that we should flee from sin that so easily enslaves, entangles. You may put on a front or a mask this morning. You may harbor, be harboring a sin. You may be in lust, in morality. You may think that you can come this morning to the service and to the church. And you may fool Pastor Jeremy or one of the elders or even me. But you will not fool the Almighty and the Holy God. And so I beg and I urge you, please come before the Lord. Seek forgiveness of sin this morning and be made new and know that the Lord grants forgiveness. So that here in verse chapter 5, verse 1, you may not just know in your mind, in your soul, in your, in your heart that you have peace with God, but that you might also feel that you have peace with God. This is such a precious quality that when you come this morning to church, this is the not a feeling, this is a fact. Because you know that apart from Jesus Christ, you are at war with God. 
You might not think to yourself this morning that you are at war, at war with God. You might not even have thought of God because that's kind of our contemporary culture. If I don't think about God, if I don't have any bad things that I say about anyone, then I'm not really at war with God. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you aren't even thinking about God, worshiping Him, treasuring Him, acknowledging Him, you are still at war with Him. Our world likes to portray a world of neutrality. That if we keep our mouth shut, we don't enter into the fray of anything that we say or speak or do or live our life, that we're neutral. But you see, that's not the case here in the Bible. There is no real true neutral individual. You are either for or you are either against. It matters very little as to whether or not you are actually cognitively thinking against God. Paul says that the enemy of our world today here in Romans 1 is unbelief. He says that in verse 18 and onward. It is unbelief that we are battling against. That is the foe. That is the enemy. He is not content to rest. He is not content to rest on his laurels, as it were. He is not content just to sit there and to aimlessly let souls wander by. But he is actively engaged in battle. And so you and I both know of a time when our lives... We're in conflict with God. And you know the wondrous moment upon which when you heard the good news, your conscience was stirred. The peace that you once had in the flesh is marred, ruined, because now the word of the Lord penetrates into your heart and you can no longer live your life without acknowledging that what you're doing is not good. And the more you expose yourself to God's word, the more you expose yourself to the law of the Lord, the more it becomes, as if I can use an illustration, like a stick. It beats you. It drives you. It beats you towards, ultimately towards Christ to receive forgiveness by faith. And in one moment when you proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior, the stick that was berating and beating you, convicting you in your conscience and your soul, no longer beats you, becomes the cane that you lean upon. It becomes the cane that you stand on, that you depend upon as the glorious conduct and standard in which you gloriously want to live according to. You have this believer, beloved, this morning, peace with God. That this morning as you proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are now, as Paul writes here in this chapter, in the first 11 verses, reconciled to Him. You are no longer an enemy. You are a friend. You are a friend unto the Lord, and the Lord is unashamed in calling you a friend. He is unashamed in calling you, later Paul will write, as a son or a daughter of the Lord. He has welcomed you into the family. And as you read in the Gospels, Christ has gone forth to prepare a room for you. This can only be the loving work and the loving act of a gracious and loving Father who has bestowed upon us in Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, an inheritance that is lavish, merciful, gracious, that is overwhelming to the senses and overwhelming to the soul. This is one of the most immediate consequences and applications of Having righteousness being given unto you. The Bible is so wonderful because it tells us that first and foremost, you need to be made righteous inside. This is what the Bible calls this imputed righteousness or justification as it were. These are big fancy terms, right? And sometimes when you go to church or you're reading these Christian books, you come across these large words and you're like, I have no idea what that means. Imputed righteousness merely means that we were unrighteous. Christ who is perfect and holy is righteous. Upon his death and resurrection, those who proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior have been given his righteousness. It is upon this platform, this foundation, that we have any standard to live a holy life. We work, according as the Bible teaches, from the inside out. This is not a message of moralism, where moralism is merely attracted to the outward. And is content to let the inward decay and die and rot. Oh no. This is a message that begins first and foremost. That you need to acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior. And from Him receive His righteousness. So that these pillars might emerge. 
and provide the glorious, glorious platform for you to live a holy life. This morning you entered into a relationship, into repentant faith with Christ this morning, I pray, and I hope. And so you know the sinless Son of God, and so you know you've been reconciled. And this morning I pray that one of the first pillars that you may know is that you have peace with God. Second, the second pillar that you might know is that you have steadfast grace. Steadfast grace. Verse 2. Paul writes, Through Him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith, which, make no mistake, huge privilege. This idea of access has tied to the connotation, to the imagery of going into the temple, standing before the Lord. And now we have this access by faith to this holy God, through Christ, into this grace, Paul writes, in which we stand. This pillar that Paul talks about here in verse 2, the steadfast grace, is in which the sphere that envelops us is of one of God's grace, one of God's mercy. It's a safety. It's not a curse. It's a freedom. It's a privilege. It's a joy. You know that faith is necessary for salvation, that it is by God's grace, not because of your faith alone, it's not because of that you willed yourself to believe, but because God himself enlightened, inspired his word, he illuminated his word, and made you alive through his spirit, through this word, and you proclaim him as God. God's grace, his gift, his power to save and to keep you saved. God does not just save you by His divine grace and then allow you then just to preserve yourself by mere human efforts. No, what God does is that He gives in full salvation. There are no mockeries to God's grace. God does not merely just save you, wind you up, and then just let you just go down without any care or consideration. Oh, but God in our, His mercy... And His love has not only rescued you and your soul, but then given you the helper that Jesus prayed for in the high holy room there in John's Gospel. This helper has come and has helped you, has given you the power, the source of strength for holy living today. God in His great mercy has bequeathed upon you this steadfast grace. That God is not content to merely allow you just to live where you are. But eagerly desires for you through Christ that when you have obtained this access to God. That upon which you stand is in His grace. And what that means and what that looks like is that you're in a constant forgiveness. It's this remarkable, pleasing, sweet truth to the lips in which you're now in a sphere of constant forgiveness now mind you God's grace is not so that you can be free to sin Paul will talk about that later in this gospel Paul just sharp mind sharp soul addressing perhaps every type of wrong doctrine being familiar with the counter arguments to this great truth will tell you as a believer that because you are saved and because of God's grace it does not mean that you are then free to go on in sinning it does not mean that as a Christian that because you have received forgiveness from God and that you acknowledge God as Lord you acknowledge His Son as Master it is He who you love and worship it is He who you desire to glorify it does not mean that as a Christian that you can just take the pass and then just keep on going sinning it does not mean that you are free then to be in sin the purpose and the effect of salvation is to free you from sin not to free you to do them God's grace enables you to pursue a holy life God's grace enables you to pursue a life free from sin not to do more sin because you are in this grace because as Paul writes there in verse 2, that upon which you stand is this grace. That from this relationship and from this faith in Christ, you will, beginning from salvation and even now and to the very end of your life, Lord willing, will have a new pattern of righteousness that springs forth from your life. A new nature. 
a new way of thinking, a new way of living your life, a sensitivity to sin. I can remember early when I became a new believer, having received the Lord as my master, someone that has rescued me from the very pits of which I laid, and did not even know I laid in. I slept with the pigs, as it were, not literally. I slept with the pigs, I was in their mud, and I didn't even know it. And then when Christ saved me, I realized just the, the, the total depravity in which I was in. And from then, God was gracious to allow new ways of thinking, godly ways of thinking, new patterns of righteous living, a sensitivity to sin. Believers, beloved, I promise that as you grow in your relationship, in your walk with the Lord, as you grow in holiness, you become more and more sensitive to sin. The sin that you have is less so. There are less fires, as it were, to put out. But the sins that still dominate in your life are so there that it grieves you even more. Paul will write later on in the book of Romans, the ongoing battle against sin in his flesh. And you may know of that battle as well, but I'm here to just encourage you to know that as you continue to faithfully live and faithfully depend upon the Lord, you might know that His grace is plentiful, a comfort. It is there to renew. It is there to build you up so that you might be more holy. Third, a hope of glory. The third pillar is the hope of glory of God. Here, as Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 2, as he continues just to raise his exaltation, his worship, he says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in this hope of glory. You know as a believer that every part of salvation is a work of God. Every part is God ordaining, God planned, God working together for His glory in this way. He saved you, He just doesn't just leave you, He gives you His helper. And then here Paul writes there in verse 2, and in 3, 4, and 5, the hope that we have in glory. The end of God's gracious and marvelous work in salvation is the ultimate glorification of every believer. Every believer. You, me, that's the ultimate fulfillment of salvation. The glory. If you're taking notes, just fast forwarding. We don't have necessarily the time, but Romans 8, 29-30. Romans 8, 29-30. Salvation has been anchored in the past because Christ made peace with God, which enables you and I to have peace with God. Paul writes that salvation is anchored in the present because we continually are being intercessed by the high priest in heaven. Hebrews 7 verse 25, Christ stands at the right hand of the Lord, interceding on your behalf so that when you sin, Christ is pleading your case, saying that he's not guilty, saying that you're not guilty, acknowledging that you are a believer in Christ, that you stand with Christ. So Christ continually intercedes. And you stand securely upon God's grace. Paul wonderfully gives you just, oh, just a sweet preview of what awaits the hope of glory. That each of you, as God says, is his children. The unchangeable promise that one day you will stand clothed with glory of his son. How gracious of the father through his son this morning, we might know but just a taste of what holy living is like. That we might know what a taste of what it means to be victorious over sin. How sweet is it, believers? How sweet is it, beloved, that you might know what it means to be free from sin for what may be only a briefest of moments. It could be a day. It could be maybe a minute or two or, or just a whole month, two months, three months. It could be for just the sweetest, the sweetest of all moments. But that is just the sweetest of all previews of what eternity will be like for you as a believer. You will be clothed in the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that it will never depart. It will be who you are. Oh, that we might rejoice. 
Paul uses the word rejoice here in just 11 verses. If you kind of read that, kind of following along in your Bible, the rejoice that Paul uses there was a sense of jubilation. A sense of gladness, a sense of joyful proclamation, of singing, of dancing. We use this word not in a haphazard manner, but we use this word of rejoicing in a very solemn, excited, thankful manner. We are jubilant people because we have not only been saved by God, but we have also been given a preview presently of the glory of God. You don't have to fear the future, beloved. You don't. You don't have to fear the future. You and I live in a sea of uncertainty, do we not? Sometimes we worry about our jobs. Sometimes we worry about where our family may be or go. We worry about our homes. And our life could be just laden by worries and anxiousness. But here Paul reminds the church and he reminds you that the hope of glory dispels worry. It dispels anxiousness because God in His grace has given us this preview of what it will be like. We have no inclination to fear Our salvation is not maintained by our own works, our own hands. It is maintained by God. And God says in Philippians that God has done a great work. He will continue to do great work in your life. He will continue to make you holy as you depend upon Him, cling to Him, discipline your life in a way that is honorable to Him with the right attitudes, with the right motivation. And you will be, as God promised, by His grace, carried to the very end in glory. You share in this glory. John 17, verse 22, these are the words of our Lord. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, to me, to you, that they may be one, even as we are one. What an amazing promise. High priestly prayer of our Lord, praying on behalf of His disciples, and praying on behalf of you for us, 2,000 plus years later. You will partake of this glory. You will share in the glory of Christ. The glory of His divine holiness. The majestic perfection will radiate in you and through you for all eternity. Life is very short. I don't need to tell you that. I live and I see this in many of your examples of the way that you live your life. You know that life is short. I'm always constantly reminded that the outer is decaying, but what are the glorious words of our Lord that the inner is being made renewed, right? So every day when I get up, I look at myself in the mirror, there's another gray hair, uh, getting larger, my neckties don't fit as they once did. The outer is just slowly, slowly decaying, but the promise of God's word is that the inner is being renewed, renewed such that this promise comes to fruition. You are being made renewed. And you are going to radiate the holiness of our Lord. You are going to radiate now and forever and ever. Obedience to the Lord doesn't preserve salvation. Obedience to the Lord is an evidence of salvation. Our perseverance in the faith does not maintain our salvation. Our perseverance in the faith is merely an outward proof of it. You are called out of death, out of darkness, beloved, to live for holiness and to live for the glory of God. A constant refrain of the Bible as believers is to live for holiness, live for His glory, live now for His truth, and live now for the righteousness, and then attain it. These are such comforting words in whatever season of life we're in because as Paul writes, he gives you this wonderful chain there in verse 5 and we just want to read that in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This morning you might have been undergoing a severe tribulation and and what I mean by that it's not that you stub your toe against the bed frame. It's that because you proclaim Christ, they acknowledge, you acknowledge that Christ is your Lord and Savior. And perhaps this morning you're facing a type of hostility from the world. 
Perhaps you shared Christ with your neighbor, and your neighbor now looks at you disdainfully. Perhaps in their unbelief, they've gone to great extremes in trying to harangue and harass you. Perhaps you work, and they know that you're a professing believer. Perhaps you've been passed over for a promotion. Perhaps you might be on the very cusp of losing your job because you're a professing Christian. Paul writes that these tribulations and these trials, you don't suffer them for the mere sake of suffering, but you suffer them for the sake of the Lord. The Beatitudes confirm all the truth and all the message is that as you live a godly life, you will be persecuted. As you run with the Lord and you seek to depend upon the Lord every day, every moment of your life, as you ask the Lord to make you holy, not because you're uppity or self-righteous, but because you're truly humble and meek before the Lord, and the Lord continues to make you sensitive to sin, the people will see that, the, un- the unbelief, the worldliness, and they will go hostile. But you see Paul's words here in Romans 5 are such treasure, such hope, He says that our afflictions for Christ's sake, it produces an ever-increasing blessing. It is strange that God's children, you and I, would be promised for this, destined for affliction, as it were. But the great sweet hope that we have in Christ is that we will be with Him in glory. Your maturity, your growth in holiness, like every aspect of God, is accomplished by God's gracious power. Fourth, you possess divine love. Fourth pillar is you possess divine love. Possess divine love. And there you just see those great words in verse 5, second half. Oh, this hope that we have does not put us to shame. Why? Because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to you. While we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though. Paul acknowledges, perhaps, a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, you possess divine love. You and I possess this holy, remarkable divine love. You've entered into this relationship with God and this last throughout all eternity. And Paul writes here in chapter 5, verse 5, that now you beloved, you believer, you possess divine love of God. And this divine love of God has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit's ministry that was given to you. Verse 8 really clarifies anything that we might have in questions. That the love of God isn't referring to our love for God, but rather God's love for you. It is God's love for you, Paul writes here in chapter 5, verse 5 through 8. It is God's love for you that has been poured into your hearts. It is His love. He has loved you first. First John writes that we do not know what love is. He has loved us first so that we might know what love is. This is an overwhelming truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God has loved sinful, fallen, rebellious people. So much so that He gave His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God has graciously imparted to you His love. This is the great truth. Those who accept this gracious offer of salvation, (coughs) God takes His indiscernible, undeserved love, and He pours it out into your life. He pours it. The word there for pouring, the imagery there, is not like a a stingy pour. Sometimes you go to um, to a restaurant, you ask for a Diet Coke. I ask for a Diet Coke. 
when you're there and they pour it for you, you know, from the bottle, and they kind of just pour it a little bit, you know, they leave like maybe like three inches of space on top, and you're like, this is weak. So you just kind of pour it up to the very top. The imagery that Paul conveys here, women, that God graciously pours his love through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's not a stingy pour. It's not a pour in which you, you know, just kind of measure it out. It's a pour in which it rises to the very cusp, the very level of the cup. It rises to the very edge, and it's almost going to spill over. It's a love that is gracious. It is a love that is overwhelming. It is a love that at the very slightest knock could just pour out of the cup. God has not been unashamed in this lavish outpouring of His mercy, <coughs> of His love. Let alone the very fact that as a believer this morning you have the great helper of which is no small feat. The Holy Spirit that dwells within you is such a surefire sign and testimony. It is no stretch of the imagination, beloved, that you would say, I love God. It's, it's, who wouldn't want to love God? Who wouldn't want to love what the Bible says is true and proclaims as true? That this God, in which we could have faced judgment, punishment, hell, <coughs> has saved us. It's no stretch of the imagination for you or for I to say, I love you, Lord. I love you because you rescued me. But does it not defy all reasonable imagination for God himself to say, I love you? I loved you. Saved you and rescued you. I redeemed you and reconciled you to me. what he does in his good nature good will in his grace and mercy saves you and pours this love in your heart God has loved you with an immense love and he demonstrated that with Christ dying for the very ungodly which is what Paul is getting to in verse 7 for one will scarcely die for a righteous person Verse 8. But God. But God shows His love for you and for me that while we were still sinners, He died for us. Those words I remember reading and I've underlined right now, even in my Bible to this day, reminds me that Christ died for me, not because I was perfect of my own strength, not because you were perfect in your own righteous works, not because you did anything good, but Christ died for me. He died for you while you were still a sinner. Where can we go but find this lavish love, this welcoming embrace, this love of grace and mercy? Do not depart from this church if you don't know Christ. The day is young, the day is short. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't leave through those doors. Don't leave in your sin. Don't leave in your trespass. Leave being reconciled to God. Knowing that you can be in Christ. Oh, my heart breaks. If you leave not knowing Christ, then you face an eternal condemnation. You leave with your soul being afflicted. You leave being knowing what hangs over you this morning. And so I urge you, don't leave through those doors. Come and be reconciled to Christ. Believe in Him as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says, you will be made new. 
You might not feel new outwardly, but you are new inwardly. Christ no longer sees you in your unrighteousness. He no longer sees you in the sins that you committed, or will commit, or have committed. (coughs) God sees you through the righteous lens of His Son, and He sees you as forgiven. What good news is that? But the best news. You can leave this morning through those doors. New. A new creature. I don't even need to sell you on that. It sells itself, does it not? Everyone wants the newest thing, the newest car, the newest iPad, iPhone, iTech, whatever, whatever. But here, God promises to His people, to you who are listening, to those who might hear, that you can be a new person. I want that. And I want all of that. The next pillar, certain delivery. Certain delivery, verse 9 and 10. Just praise. Just praise upon praise upon praise. Just when you read in verse 5 and you go home, take note, rejoicing repeats itself. Much more than that repeats itself. Oh, our worship, our, the culmination of our time together spent on a Sunday is oh so brief and oh so short. But the word of the Lord stands forever and will be with you and be cherished amongst you. And boom, much more than that. Verse 9, and continues to lay it on very gloriously, very wonderfully. Since therefore we have now been justified as blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Much more indicates that there's even more overwhelming and more significant than just what happened. When you're reading this, when you're studying this, you're just like, I can't believe there's much more to this. How much more, God? Much more. Much more. Much more than the love of of our God being poured into us by the Holy Spirit. Much more than when Christ has died on the cross for us as sinners while we were still sinners. Verse 9, much more than we are now saved from the wrath of God. It makes you weak in the knees. It just, one blessing, one pillar of immaculate construction, of immaculate worth being laid into the very foundation of God's Son and His righteousness. Paul saying that we are assured of being saved from the wrath of God through Christ. He says that as a child... You don't face the wrath. As a child of God, you don't face that wrath. Part of God's work through His Son was to save you from that wrath. It's an argument, really, from one degree to another degree. God had the power to save you, to redeem you. How much, more than God, how much more does He have the power to keep you and to keep you redeemed? God saved you through His Son, Jesus Christ, delivered you from sin and from judgment. He delivers you from the uncertainty and doubt as well. Just take note. If God already saved you from sin, He saved you from death, He saved you then from future judgment, how then could your present spiritual life be ever in jeopardy? Has not God covered already all the pillars, all the, all, all the hallmarks of your life, past, present, future? If you are ever in doubt, ever in wonder about how much God has loved you, you don't need to go very far other than look towards the cross. How much did God love me? You loved greatly. If sin, no matter to what degree, could not prevent you from being reconciled to Christ, from being reconciled to God, then sin, into any lesser degree, is not a prevention from God from rescuing, delivering, and protecting you. 
Christ has given you a remarkable gift, delivered you from sin. He's delivered you from God's wrath. He has reconciled you with God the Father. And in Christ, He's preserved you for this present life, for future glory. And last, joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. Verse 11. Oh, beloved, just read in verse 11. More than that. Wow. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than that. More than that, we have now joy. And here it touches upon the feelings. You see how Paul has carefully laid truth, doctrine, God's word, layer by layer by layer. And then in the verse 11, it culminates in the expression of truth in unreserved joy. Joy in the Lord. (coughs) It was God in Christ (coughs) who gave us reconciliation as a gift. This is what enables you as a believer this morning to be able to sing in grateful joy and exultation over the salvation that you received in Him. It says to sing unto the Lord. Sing. And where could we go? After having been brought very low and very down in our despair, now to the very highest in receiving salvation in Christ, being promised a future glory, being preserved by God in His great strength and mercy. Where could you go? Could you not just sing? My heart is drawn to David. He writes this in Psalm 34, verse 3. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Six wonderful pillars built upon the foundation of Christ's righteousness given to you. You now have a pillar of peace with the Lord. You have steadfast grace in which your life now encompasses. It is the sphere of safety and protection. It is a sphere in which you are truly free from sin, free from the entrapment of. You may receive forgiveness from the throne of God. It is the third pillar, the hope of glory, the promise in knowing that you may face trials and tribulation. It is knowing that you receive a future hope with God, a hope of glory, a perfect righteousness that will be uttered and lived in your life throughout all of eternity. Fourth pillar, a possessing of divine love, knowing that God loves you by the sending of His Son and the death of His Son and the resurrection of His Son. It is a certain delivery knowing that you will be saved from the wrath of God. And the last pillar, the pillar of exaltation, of song, the joy in the Lord that you have. Six pillars that define for us building upon the righteous work of the righteous nature of Christ being given to you that you may go back to and rest under. This morning, how will you live your life? How will you go forth from this day taking these sweet promises of the Lord and building your confidence in Him, in His Word, with His people? I invite you to join with the elders of this church and with the people of this church. Run this race together by building in one another's life a reminder of these six great pillars. For the foundation will never disappoint you. And the foundation of Christ's righteousness will never be threatened. Pray with me.
Father, this morning, it is just our utmost privilege to come and spend the day with you, the Lord's Day, as it were. And we know that this is not just merely one day, that really all of our days are committed and consecrated unto you, to spend each and every waking moment depending upon you, living our life to glorify you. And as we receive what is a sweet promise of holy living, Father, by your grace and by your mercy, enable us daily to come before your word with a humble and meek heart, to hunger, to thirst, and to receive in full your word. To commune with you every moment of our life in prayer, depending upon you, seeking to acknowledge you in every facet of our life. And so, Father, I pray that you would make us sensitive to sin in our life. Help us to grieve over sin to put away sin and to put off and to put on the new in Christ. Increase our growth so that we are made into the image of Christ. It is only by your power, only by your mercy, and only by your grace, Father, that we can do any and hope for any of these things to happen. May you be exalted as your people depend upon you and receive your word and glorify you in their life. Pray these things in your son's name.